Hi, this is Brian Shutt, and I'm the founder here at Refinery46, and excited to uh, be interviewing Fred Franson with Sertel today. Fred, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, Brian. You are a unique guest for early Refinery46 podcast here in that you're in a totally different space from a lot of the other members in education technology. I'll probably butcher an introduction on exactly what Sertel does, and we'll get to that in a bit. But before we jump into Sertel specifically, give me a little bit about your background, where you're from, career arc that, that got you to starting Sertel. So first of all, I hope I'm not so much different from your other uh, tenants. Uh, I do my own plumbing and electrical work, and I'm in the middle of rebuilding the back end of my son's 1997 Toyota Land Cruiser. So I'm a great believer in the crafts and the importance of craftsmanship and uh, and the trades. That's and awesome. so it's uh, I feel at home among your other <laughs> tenants. Well, you're a lot handier than I am. That's really clear because I can do none of those things that you mentioned. Um, but anyway, by way of background, uh, I grew up in Kansas, spent three years living in Belgium and Europe, and then went to graduate school at University of Chicago. I finished at University of Chicago in 1996 with a PhD in something called social thought, and then came to Indianapolis, became a Hoosier in the fall of 1996, working for an educational foundation called Liberty Fund, which is then was in Castleton. It's now located up in Carmel. Uh, I worked for them for about 10 years and then in 2006 began to work as an advisor to philanthropists. Basically, I help uh, rich people give money away. And in so doing, of course, people don't just give money away. They try to do some good with it. And so I work primarily, have worked primarily with people who are interested in promoting improvement in their educational systems uh, with their philanthropy. In the course of that, starting in about uh, 2011, I began looking for technological solutions to improving education. Uh, there was a lot of talk about MOOCs, massive open online courses, uh, the penetration of computer technology and digital curriculum was beginning to, to, beginning to begin. And so I began on behalf of my clients to look for projects related to how to leverage technology in order to improve education. I ran across a project at Florida State University, uh, started directing my clients to that, and then the whole thing kind of snowballed. We ended up working with faculty at Utah State University, at Arizona State University, working with a nonprofit in Pennsylvania. And all the while, I was simply acting as a, an agent of uh, a group of donors. And it became clear that to really make this work, we needed to bring everything together and kind of under one roof for management and marketing purposes. And so I formed Sertel in 2015 and haven't looked back. That's awesome. Expound upon sort of maybe some of the more depth of, of what you saw when you initially connected with the group at FSU and some of those other places. And yeah, like unpack it a little bit more because... Even when I try to explain it, having heard the story a few times, I kind of struggle with the specifics. So. Right, sure. So there are, there are two problems that teachers face today. The first problem is that students increasingly are expecting high production value at learning resources. Um, I mean, basically, students spend much of their day, young people spend much of their day, actually all of us spend much of our day looking at our smartphones, and it's really important that the kind of content that we look at on those phones is a high production value. You, you gravitate towards things that are well-produced. 
um, anymore, people have access 24-7 to things that were made by multi-million dollar production budgets for TV shows or movies or very high-end YouTube channels yeah. and that kind of thing. So if you're a teacher, you're competing with that. Yeah. So the big challenge that one of the big challenges teachers face is how do you compete with the alternatives that students have in terms of their learning? So what we do and what this project at uh, Florida State uh, did and continues to do is to go out to popular media, TV shows, movies, also you know, high-quality Internet content produced for the Internet, and take the content in, in their case in Florida in economics and personal finance and relate it to or map it onto the kinds of things that show up in sitcoms and in dramas and in movies. So what they were doing is they were taking, for instance, an excerpt out of Seinfeld that talks about compound interest and then building a personal finance lesson around that uh, video clip mm-hmm. or taking something from a National Geographic special about development in the third world and taking that and turning that into a lesson on economic growth. So I thought that was really, really, really cool. Among other things, it also is affordable. Um, There's something called educational fair use. It basically says for educational purposes, you can use that kind of copyrighted content. Hmm. Um, And as a consequence, you get the, the value of high production value materials, but you're repurposing them for educational use. Interesting. Uh, so that's what they were doing. And, I, and, and that's, all, that's one of the problems of teachers is how do you relate to digital native students or digital native people these days? Yeah. The second is that as schools began shifting towards what's called one-to-one devices, where every student has a computer. You know, in my day, you went to computer class either once a week or once a, once, once a day, but the rest of your time you were working on with pencils and paper. Mm-hmm. As about 10, 15 years ago, schools started transitioning to where the student had their own personal computer, a laptop, a Chromebook, a tablet, whatever it happened to be, and they would carry that from period to period. And Each teacher was expected to put digital content onto those devices and begin using those. That's great as a supplemental tool, but increasingly teachers were also being asked to get rid of their old-fashioned textbooks (laughs) and simply pull all of the resources necessary to teach their classes from free sources that are available online. And whereas teachers are great at teaching, that's what they do. They're not necessarily great content creators or content curators. So we do the heavy lifting for them on that, and we make it all available for free. That's fantastic. What I'm struck with is, the as anybody who's sort of alive and aware today, and I think you're hitting on it, access to information is not necessarily an issue. It's that curation piece as you're talking about. And, and while there is, and I wasn't aware of the educational fair use allowing for that availability, so that sort of gives you access to the high quality production value, but there's still that curation production side of putting it together and sort of slicing and dicing it. So A, just I imagine that's part of what what the effort is uh, that Sertel does, we'll dive into. I'm also sort of in my mind, thinking about the receiving end, do you have sort of a target market that the content that you're creating is sort of the recipients of as far as age ranges go? Within that, are you seeing any challenge related to curation and production related to sort of attention span realities of of this generation that's in the school systems now? And how are you sort of adapting and evolving what you put out there to, to sort of meet that challenge. Sure. So our our content is currently specifically designed for high school level students. 
Now, I don't believe there's a huge difference between advanced high school and introductory college material. Um, I think more the structure of how classes are operated is, is different as opposed to the, the level of the content. Mm -hmm. So some of our materials are used at the college level, particularly our, particularly our economics and personal finance mm -hmm. uh, for introductory courses. We're certainly not doing advanced college work. We have, I believe, about 15 or 20 percent of our teachers are in lower grades than high school, middle school, more um, but even some elementary school teachers, I suspect that for the most part, elementary school teachers are using it to teach themselves as opposed to to teach their students. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we don't really know that very well. So that's the age level that we teach at. Now, high school or high school level content is the sort of thing that every adult should have. And as we both know, there are lots of adults who never really learned much in high school. Yeah. And there are also a lot of adults who weren't ready to learn in high school, then they need to kind of go back and do things remedially. Mm -hmm. So we're very interested in taking some of the same kind of basic information learning that you need to be a productive adult and bringing that to other audiences be besides just the ninth, through ninth grade through 12th grade level that we primarily target with our marketing. Okay. The second question you asked was about intention spans. And that's a really interesting one because there's lots and lots of information and studies about how attention spans are shortening, and that's absolutely true. There's no, there's no doubt about that. But at the same time, I'm starting to become suspicious that we may be underestimating our children, if you will. Mm -hmm. And what makes me think that is because, I don't know if you've, if you've noticed this or not, if you're a big consumer of YouTube, but five years ago, everybody said that you couldn't make anything that was longer than three or four minutes. That they, no one would watch a video that yeah. was longer than three minutes. And so everybody conformed to that. Well, it just so happens that YouTube's financial algorithm gave preference to three to four minute videos. Yeah. So it was definitely the case that YouTube thought that you didn't want longer videos because that was what was making them yeah. the most money. Yeah. They've changed that now. Interesting. So they now believe that they can, uh, they can monetize longer videos at a higher profit basis or they can generate more revenue from longer videos. They're, they're shifting their focus from lots and lots of viewers with short video watching habits towards fewer viewers who are, gonna, who are willing to watch longer videos into which they can insert more ads. Interesting. So as a consequence, suddenly the paradigm is not our attention spans are three minutes, but our attention spans are 15 minutes. And that's just because that's in the self-interest of YouTube. Nothing wrong with what YouTube's doing, but I think we have to be careful yeah. before we attribute that three to four minute to something that's inherent in human nature or yeah. in, in young people as opposed to something that's inherent, inherently there. We've done some preliminary studies on this ourselves. And yeah. We're going to be doing a lot more studies on this. We're just getting our platform up to the place where we can actually you know, yeah. do it okay. uh, systematically. Test, yeah. But what, what we have found is that it's not the length of the video ma that matters, but how compelling the first yeah. 15, 20 seconds of it yeah, is. Yeah, that's interesting. If you, just, get it, if you can I, catch them yeah. at the first 20 seconds or 30 seconds, we don't yeah. know exactly where that is, yeah. then they'll watch the next 12 minutes or 5 minutes or 15 minutes, whatever you give them. I, just was, I was going to interject. I just read something a week or so ago that said, we don't have short attention spans. We have short consideration spans. Exactly. And so, yeah, capturing the audience because it's like we'll listen to two, three-hour podcasts if we're actually engaged in what they're talking about. But exactly, yeah, if it doesn't draw us in really quickly, then yeah. we'll move in. So we're going to do some, some testing of that. And, just, and it's easy to test uh, up to seven minutes yeah. because we use a lot of material from sitcoms. And a sitcom typically has three storylines that are interwoven. Okay. Uh, and and the breaks are breaked with uh, commercials, uh -huh. so that means that a 22 minute, you know, in a 30 minute episode, 
there'll be about 22 minutes of content, and that's divided into three storylines, so about seven minutes per storyline. <laughs> uh, we, we spend a lot of time carefully editing those seven minutes down to three to four minutes, and it looks like that was not necessary. But we can test that, so we're going to go through and take the seven-minute storyline, reconstruct the whole thing, and then make a three-minute, a five-minute, and a seven-minute version and see whether we get drop-off at, at a certain point. I'm a big fan of YouTube maker channels mm -hmm. of all kinds. It can be blacksmiths. It can be uh, woodworkers. It can be you know the, the minivan conversion people. <laughs> I like watching sort of yeah. how any man and handy women kinds of things. If you look at the really great maker channels, they all start their videos or well, they increasingly start their videos with a trailer. <laughs> so you're going to get a 15-minute or a 17-minute or an 18-minute video, but, but the first 20 seconds are actually literally a trailer for the rest of the 17 minutes. And we want to do some experiments with that as well, whether creating a trailer creates the sort of tension and desire sure. to watch the whole thing yeah. that movie trailers are designed to do and we can, whether we can make that work for educational curriculum. That's fascinating. I don't know if you have uh, Netflix or uh, any of those sort of selective channels on sort of Apple TV or whatever you watch through. But Net Netflix now, when you're scrolling over the different options, will autoplay the trailers. Yeah. So there, there must be some increasing data out there around yeah. uh, get, getting people hooked early with, with sort of the high level yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and one comment about all of that and this sort of data in general is that the re, we, you know, we built our own content delivery platform. And the reason for that is because we think having, you know, educators need to have access to that data mm -hmm. about how students learn, what works, what doesn't work. Right now, if we would, you know, we, if we were simply publishing our books on, you know, on the Kindle platform or some other platform, uh, big tech companies would have access to all of that data, but we wouldn't have access and we couldn't translate yeah. into usable data for teachers. So we're all about kind of generating these kinds of interesting results and then making that information available, not just to teachers in general, but to the specific teachers working with their specific classes of, of, of students. You mentioned um, econ, personal finance. What, what's the focus areas of, of the content that you're trying to, to deliver to students now? So required high school studies, every state has different requirements, mm -hmm. and in some states it's not even at a state level. But, but the bulk of the, you know, sort of the median uh, system is that freshmen take a year of world history, global civilizations, cultural geography. There are all kinds of different names for it, but mm -hmm. it's basically what we would have called uh, world history, mm -hmm. what we call world history. Uh, sophomores take a year of American history. Juniors and seniors take a semester of economics and a semester of government. And if often what will happen is juniors will take a full year of economics and then mm -hmm. seniors take a semester of government. And there's some different things. Government and econ are each a semester-long course. Mm -hmm. uh, in some states, personal finance is a whole semester. Yeah. In other it's integrated in other ways. So we offer those courses, world history, American history, government, and, and economics. And which are the required uh, high school social studies courses. Mm -hmm. And those are the ones that cover um, the primary kinds of things you need to, to know to be productive as an individual, to understand the institutions and the, you know, the, the, the framework in which our, our country operates. Yeah, that's awesome. So and you imagine you're going to continue to just focus on that, that core we want to, we're, we're not quite done building out some of the materials that we're working with our teachers, and we constantly refresh uh, the materials as well, or we frequently refresh the materials as well, uh, particularly the video collections, because that gets old quickly. Mm -hmm. We are 
working really hard on kind of finishing up all of the technical sides of our platform. It works great as a delivery system now. We're working on the data side of it. Mm -hmm. And we are imagining kind of going in two different paths depending on what the market says. One path would be go into lower grades of social studies, particularly middle school mm-hmm. social studies, where we simply take what we're doing now and we, we bring it into lower grade levels. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other is we think the platform is potentially so powerful that we'll go to a school and they'll say, we want to use this school-wide, but you know, and, you know, after it gets started, um, our English teachers and our math teachers and our science teachers are really jealous of the social studies who have this incredible tool. Couldn't yeah. you also make English and math and social studies? So what I would really like to do next would be to, if we could find the funding to build this, would be to build out the other core subjects at the high school level before we start going down to lower grade levels. Yeah. Um, so that all, you know, an entire school could have the advantages for its core curriculum, at least, of the ability to monitor students, the ability to understand you know, what's working and what's not working, and, and build in some of the self-assessment and other tools that our, our curriculum has. So we're, we're looking for a it's really expensive to build curriculum. Yeah. You know, that's why you know, there are only a handful of publishing companies that, mm-hmm. that provide full-service curriculum. So we need some help from a few wealthy schools or a, a wealthy donor or someone yeah. to do that. But we'd really like to build out those other subjects so that we can be have the platform be a comprehensive tool for schools. That's fantastic. And, and sort of going back to go forward, so 2015, you formed Sertel. Technology being integrated into education. Again, my intuition is some schools more open to to leveraging technology than others, as there are some school systems that are more geared toward change than others. And then everything stops and the whole concept of what school looks like changes within the pandemic. So how how has how has the last year impacted Sertel and 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 what's that sort of yeah, what's the last year been like with sort of this platform that's that's built around, I would I would guess a lot more flexibility toward a remote environment that, that many schools have had to work within. We were built for COVID without knowing that COVID was coming. That's awesome. The big the big things that we noticed. So we we've been growing very rapidly since yeah. since 2015. We had maybe a hundred students using the platform. Then when we moved into this building, I think we had 2,500 teachers or so. Uh, we now have well over 10,000 teachers wow. using the platform and more than 25,000 have registered on our website. So we've been growing exponentially kind of all through our history. This year, our growth is starting to, to not, we're not going to grow exponentially this year, but we're still growing very rapidly. We're certainly going to grow and get, have, add more new teachers this year than we did last year. But in terms of usage of the platform, in spring, we in the number of, of teachers who had their students assigned to use our curriculum increased by more than fifty percent. So it was a big bump uh, between first of April and mm-hmm. you know our first of March and April thirtieth. Uh, some come some of our content pieces, uh, we went from uh, we increased by uh, more than fourfold from last April to uh, to this fall. Uh, we saw a big bump. And there's a lot of interest in the in August when teachers are sort of getting things ready for the fall semester, and then in November when the you know the the lockdowns and the disruption started mm-hmm. to kind of get big again, we saw another big influx of teachers that were looking for our stuff. Uh, so we've had you know it's had a big impact on our numbers, and and you know we've also talked to quite a number of teachers 
who are using our material very, very thoroughly in the in in their classroom. This sort of in, in embodies how they teach, and um, and some of the feedback is just incredible. Like uh, one teacher that we talked to just before Christmas uh, was saying that her her students, she was looking for materials. Sertel was the only thing she could find that really worked in her classroom with COVID. And uh, so she began look, using it. It was, you know, really enjoyed it, really was benefiting from it. Her students loved it. And then late in the fall, one of the, the principal came and said, okay, you have to do standardized testing. Social studies is the, you know, the poor stepchild of the mm-hmm. curriculum because it's not tested for, you know, with I-STEP. Yeah. You know, English and math is what's tested. Social studies gets yeah. left behind. And, uh, and so goes to her class, says, okay, we're not going to have Sertel social studies tomorrow. You have to take this test. And they said, they begged the teacher, couldn't we take the test during English class? Cause we don't want to miss. That's awesome. So Sertel, yeah. right. So that's the kind of feedback that we're getting. Feedback. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we just need to, you know, we want to get the word out to more teachers yeah. and we want to, um, engage with more teachers because you know, we're, our, our penetration is still yeah. not nearly what it, it could be in the country. What, what is a, you know, What's a key performance indicator of success with with curriculum like that? I mean, because I think one of the reasons that it's tough to standardize is that its comprehension is a little less sort of finite than things like math and English, I would guess. So how, how do you sort of stack up against whatever metric the social studies space uses uh, for success w- within students? Which, again, from my you know standpoint, Education should be about obviously understanding and, and comprehension. Um, so, with that goal in mind, sort of how do you stack up and how do you feel like um, the competitive landscape of other things are that, that you're sort of, I guess, competing against for these for these teachers as platform of choice? Yeah, we don't. I don't think we have the data to answer how we. You know, we, we deeply believe that we stack up better, but I yeah. don't think I have the data to answer that in any any kind of. Certainly not the comparative yeah. data. But let me let me tell you what the indicator should be, yeah. and we should be you know, working against it as well. Uh, one would be something very simple, like uh, do your students at the end of high school pass the citizenship test? Yeah. Would they pass the citizenship test if asked to take it? Um, do they know how to balance uh, their savings or their 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 uh, what we still call checking accounts, hmm. um, but their cash account? Yeah. They don't have a checkbook, do but they, they should know how to balance Exactly. All. They should still be able to balance the, the checkbook. You know, are, do they, are they equipped to live adult lives? Uh, I think one piece of that is the, would be the citizenship uh, test, but there'd be the other similar ones uh, yeah. along those lines. The fact that, you know, the, I, I, I live and breathe this. Uh, you know, this is still an avocation yeah. for me. I still consult with donors. Yeah. It's just I have about five hours a week to do that, and I, have, I spend about 55 hours a week working on Sertel. Um, but I think the reason that I'm still so passionate about it is because you know, the best performance indicator is can we talk to our relatives who vote differently at Thanksgiving? Yeah. And the answer to that is absolutely not. We Our social studies world, our civics education system for, it's not teacher's fault, yeah. but the system that we've developed, whether it be through you know, social media or yeah. other media or whatever it is, is an abysmal failure. Mm-hmm because we no longer tolerate difference in this country. Uh, and, and, and to me, that's the primary, should be the primary goal of, of, uh, of social studies, is does it create an environment in which we can get along with each other, and particularly with the others amongst us who are different? Absolutely. And, uh, and that's what drives me, because that needs to change. 
uh, if it doesn't change the American experiment that you know, started in 1776 and continued in 1787 and had a major disruption in 1861, you know that that experiment uh, could could soon be over. Uh, I don't think the world would be a better place if it ended. Mm. And uh, and and the only way to salvage that is to restore some of these principles of tolerance and uh, recognition of the value of others and um, and some of the other core principles that have been you know have made this country so successful until now. Yeah, that's really inspiring. And and I think um, yeah, where there's a whole lot of people talking about the issues and lamenting them. And while there's not going to be a, a silver bullet solution, I think this absolutely sounds like part of the mix of how we can shape the younger generation toward greater sense of civility and responsibility as citizens. And I, and I think having some sort of tangible metric like you're talking about of a citizenship test, um, which we require of people that, that want to immigrate through the system, but it, you know, I don't have specific numbers, but from just anecdotally and hearing how what they ask, I know most U.S. citizens probably couldn't pass it. I mean, it's just great sort of tactical way to measure where you know what where people are at once they leave the the tax supported education system. What would, what's the what's the barrier to execution on something like that? Who who would need to be influenced to? add something like that to uh, to a high school graduation process um, I, I there are that quite the specifically the citizenship yeah. test is a question that I think is on the agenda of some state legislatures That's fantastic. so so that would be that would be the, the thing I don't know if there if there are single groups that are promoting that across the country if it's happening yeah. at the state level but that would that that would be one thing I might I might add my wife is an immigrant um, <laughs> my uh, my parents were immigrants, both of them, and my grandparents were all immigrants to, to Canada. And one of the things that, uh, so I'm the first American in my family, in my nuclear family. Uh, my brother and sister were born in Canada as well. <laughs> and one of the things that is really, really interesting is if you look at success indicators, you know, basically um, personal income or family, family income, household income, immigrants by and large do significantly better than mm. than, than uh, non-immigrants, and it has nothing to do with race. Uh, absolutely nothing to do with race. It's just straight up immigrants. And and to me, what I would like to see is I'd like to see our educational system kind of Im embed or uh, or instill in young people the notion that they should think of themselves as immigrants. Hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that they necessarily have to pass the citizenship in order to vote or anything like that. But on the contrary, that would be silly. Um, but at the same time, they should kind of come into this experience of joining the adult world in the same way that somebody who's getting off of a plane or got off of a boat in, the, in previous times came out. Because for, you know, for whatever else, uh, that experience generates success. And I think not just financial success, but I think also probably happiness and, uh, and a deeper appreciation for the country. So, um, so you know, that, that would be another way. How could we reconstruct? And, and we haven't done that. I'm not saying sure. that Sertel has done this in any specific way. But, yeah. but I, I, you know, if one were trying to think about what we need to change and how we structure the curriculum, it's make, make everybody say, okay, I want to voluntarily join this society. Mm. Uh, why? You know, explore, first of all, why. Yeah. 
And then second of all, say, okay, now that I'm going to join it, I also want to embrace it and I'm going to live as if it's an opportunity rather than an entitlement. And if you do those things, which is what everyone coming you know, off the, out yeah. of the plane from, yeah. Guyana, uh, from Ghana and Nigeria to India or Pakistan yeah. or Ukraine or all kinds of other places, when those people get off the plane, they're incredibly productive. And I think by extension, yeah. they're living very f- fulfilling and fulfilled lives. Totally agree. I think the, that sort of fresh perspective that immigrants see the U.S. through as still a land of opportunity, uh, if that properly understood by native-born Americans could be more part of the installation process or instilled within them, that I think that mm-hmm. could have a huge byproducts just to appreciate that it is still a land of opportunity and, and that yeah, no, nobody's going to hand out anything to you after graduation. Yeah, totally agree. And I think it, it, it underscores the importance of what you guys are creating or re- crafting for, for teachers to use. Understanding our history and how we got here, I think, is just obviously a part of the what's what's unfortunately not being uh, not widely understood. And, and so if we have a citizenry that doesn't understand what it means to be a citizen, we're going to have the, the polarization and, and the issues that we've we've touched on a little bit. Sort of pivoting a little bit, though we've been in the space of, of vision casting, wave a magic wand, what's Sertel look like in five years? What's the, you know, from some of these metrics that you do know, how many teachers are you working with? I think we know some of these answers from what you already touched on, sort of curriculum, what it looks like. But, you know, what, what's that future of Sertel look like? Well, right now we, uh, I, we think of ourselves, we have thought of ourselves, and, and I think most teachers think of ourselves as a source of content. Increasingly, I want to have teachers think of Sertel as a source of inspiration. That has content resources, but but are, it's not simply a place you go to to download stuff to use with your students. Um, but it's a place where you go to get inspiration for uh, how to how to instill that perspective that we just talked about uh, in in young people today. So that would be that would be one thing. Just in terms of numbers, you know, we think we can continue to grow. You know, we would like to have uh, we'd like you know three quarters of the social studies teachers at the high school level in this country to know who we are and to be occasionally using our stuff and. We'd like to be using, we'd like them, you know, a significant percentage of them to be using us as their primary content and, and having their students use it as their primary content as well. And then the last thing that I would say is, you know, as we discussed early on, uh, I think that there are lots and lots of people that fall through the cracks. Sometimes it's because they didn't have an opportunity to learn these things correctly in, uh, in high school um, for whatever reason. Uh, they might not have been emotionally or intellectually or, or, or otherwise prepared to understand it. But just because you didn't, you know, you didn't uh, understand government as an 18-year-old doesn't mean you don't need to know the lessons that you were supposed to learn as a 35-year-old. Yeah. So we would love to partner with businesses to bring some of this education, not structured as full semester long, you know, show up with your books and Apple every day kind of curriculum, but create ways for business owners to refresh in the minds of their employees some of these key lessons, mm-hmm. personal finance and economic reasoning being the starting point for that. But civic learning, we again, inc- this year has taught us is, is really vital to, to restore to people of all ages. So we'd like to be able to reach out to other, other audiences. And then the last thing that we are doing is we're beginning to 
make our platform available to other organizations who are engaged in uh, not necessarily similar work, but work which is complementary to what we're yeah. doing. So we want to partner with aid agencies, with international development agencies, with health organizations. Um, I won't go into the details, but we've particularly specifically designed our, our platform to be able to reach people in, in what I call difficult environments. Mm -hmm. And a difficult environment could be anything from a village that's off the grid in a developing country mm -hmm. where people only get internet when they go into town to uh, rural parts of this country still to places like prisons that have the tech technical capability of having good internet but for all other reasons don't allow it. But people inside prison need an education in how to be a good citizen mm -hmm. as much, maybe more than the rest of us. And so we're, we, we're wanting to partner with other organizations to take our platform and help it solve the, the connectivity problem and the content problem that they face in, in uh, educating the world. I imagine in our audience we have a lot of parents of students and people that are excited about a platform that helps students learn this content better. Um, reflecting on my own high school curriculum, I really enjoy history. It's sometimes, many times presented in such a not the most entertaining content. So all that to say, I think if there are people listening that are engaged and want to be supportive of trying to help you achieve this vision, what's what's the best method? How do they how do they help support Sertel's growth? Well, they can. Um you know, uh, come to us. Uh, our contact information's on the website. Yeah. We would love to have more donations. Uh, we're funded entirely by um, by donors at this point because we give our content away. We need we need contributions. So mm -hmm. that's the obvious way is to write us a check. Uh, we don't have a donate button on our website, but we're going to build one that does have a donate button. In the meantime, just give us a call and we can help you yeah. uh, help facilitate that. Um, the second thing is if you're a business owner and you would be interested in personal finance and economic reasoning and or civics education for your employees, uh, I'm hoping that we can roll that out in the fall next year, awesome. by the end of the summer, but in the, in the fall next year. Or likewise, if you're a parent who either wants to supplement what your students uh, have been learning or not learning mm -hmm. in school, um, we're hoping that by the end of the summer, we will also be able to have a platform for people that aren't just aren't teachers looking for content, yeah. but rather people looking for instruction where we will be providing the, that we'll be doing the teaching, if you will. That's fantastic. Uh, of, 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 of our courses and or a version of our courses that's more de designed for adults. That's fantastic. Great. And the last thing I would say is that we're working on an event. Uh, a lot of this will depend upon COVID, but we are working on an event that we want to hold this summer, if it's possible, uh, where we bring in speakers and have them give um, talks sort of like, TEDx or TED Talks yeah. uh, in Indianapolis um, that are designed around raising some of these higher level issues. We're wanting to record those in, in Indianapolis for our prison program, which is expanding rapidly. And we would love to have people that are interested in coming and attend simply as audience members and kind of joining in the, in the, in the journey that Sertel is on. That's fantastic. There's a lot more I know uh, we can dive into, but I just wanted to thank you for the time for now, and uh, hopefully we get a chance to, to dive into more in the future. But, Fred, thank you for the time. It's a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks for hosting us for all of this. That's great.